During the COVID-19 pandemic, organizations including universities and the CDC have used wastewater to understand disease dynamics. Moving forward, there's hope that community-level wastewater surveillance could help in controlling the spread of infectious diseases more generally. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michelle Mello, a professor of law and of health policy at Stanford University, and Guy Palmer, Chair in Global Health and a Professor of Pathology and Infectious Diseases at Washington State University. Professors Mello and Palmer are members of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine Committee on Wastewater Surveillance for Infectious Diseases, and they've co-authored a perspective article about the future of wastewater surveillance. Professors Mello and Palmer, how was wastewater surveillance used for public health purposes before the COVID-19 pandemic? Wastewater has been used successfully for some period of time. It was not new with the COVID-19 pandemic. Most expansively, it was used in poliovirus eradication programs. It was particularly relevant for that because the actual clinical cases of polio, that is paralysis that people are very familiar with, is really just a very small percentage of the overall number of individuals who are shedding poliovirus into the wastewater system. So it's actually served very nicely as an early warning signal that you were having poliovirus circulating in the population before you had to wait for that one of a thousand cases to actually show up with paralytic disease. So there's quite a history of using wastewater surveillance. So the idea was there prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. When that occurred, it was really an emergency response in terms of adaptation to the pandemic as it began to spread throughout the United States and then globally. So what facilitated the expansion of wastewater surveillance in the U.S. during the pandemic? And in fact, how are wastewater data collected at the community level? Initially, it was basically your thousand points of light. Individual communities, especially when they had a large university presence or a strong public health system, began to actually just on their own implement wastewater surveillance for their communities, sometimes for the universities that were involved, and began to use various different methods to successfully detect the presence of the causative virus of COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 RNA within the wastewater streams, which was then giving a relative idea of what the load was within that population that was contributing to that wastewater stream. So it really started out as, I hate to say a hodgepodge, but multiple different areas in different municipalities and communities that then the CDC began to unify starting in September of 2020 into the idea that this could be a national wastewater surveillance system in which data would be shared, not only from the communities directly conducting wastewater surveillance, but provide information for those healthcare systems and communities that were not actively doing wastewater surveillance, but could pick up on the trends that were occurring in other communities. And then how was the data from wastewater surveillance used in decision-making related to COVID-19? It was used really in a few ways. And it's important to emphasize, it's not usually used as a solitary data information source. It has to be linked into what's happening in hospitals, what's being reported into the public health systems. So an example of how it can be used is when there is a trend change. So rather than thinking of an absolute level that that is wastewater surveillance is going to tell you that 2,510 people contributing to that wastewater stream in the community 
have COVID, what it really tells you is relative trends. So you have a stable level. And then, for example, when you had an Omicron surge, you all of a sudden see a tremendous increase in the wastewater stream of SARS-CoV-2 RNA. What that does is now that allows hospitals to respond to that, doing things such as putting off, delaying elective surgeries, changing their staffing for their ICU beds so they're ready for a surge. So the trend analysis is what became really important in responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. You say in your perspective article that securing the benefits associated with wastewater surveillance in the future is going to mean addressing several challenges, including ensuring equity. So in what ways is the current wastewater monitoring system inequitable or not representative? Well, the National Wastewater Surveillance System has over 1,400 sites at this time, which is an incredible achievement. But if you look at a map of where those sites lay, they're not evenly distributed across the U.S. So there are lots of localities that are still unrepresented in news. And additionally, about one in six Americans lives in an area that is not served by a municipal sewer system. And those unsewered persons are always going to be unrepresented in wastewater surveillance. So the questions that our committee was interested in included, why isn't there broader participation in the national system in news? What are the barriers? And how might the benefits of the system be extended to people who are not currently or may never be represented in the system? And there's not a huge amount of data on why our participation isn't broader, but we do have some survey evidence that suggests the number one reason for non-participation that local health departments give is the lack of internal capacity. It might seem like a simple matter to simply dip a sample of wastewater and analyze it, but we certainly learned that it's much more complicated than it seems. It requires partnerships between local health departments and water utilities, and water utilities have not historically been considered part of the public health system don't have strong working relationships in many places. It requires analytic capacity, laboratory capacity that may not be available locally. And it requires human resources within the public health department to interpret those data, which can be tricky because sometimes the way that these data are reported out by labs are kind of hard to interpret. The the metrics are not obvious. Another reason for non-participation is lack of community buy-in, which may come from elected leaders that, shall we say, COVID suppression is not their top priority. They're not particularly interested in really aggressive pandemic response. And there may also be public concern about the system. Many communities have a very negative experience with surveillance generally. There's distrust in the public health system now, and and many people may not understand that these data are not individually identifiable, even though the samples do include human DNA. And then finally, there's, I think, a lack of understanding on the part of some local health departments of the marginal value that wastewater data have compared to their existing sources of disease surveillance data. So all of those are challenges that have to be confronted to make the system more representative and equitable. You also talk in your article about a couple of other challenges, ensuring the timeliness of surveillance and being selective about targets. So what are the next steps that need to be taken in those areas to make wastewater data actionable? Certainly the timeliness is key. It has to predate or align or augment additional data, which may be collected at healthcare facilities, for example, the number of hospitalized individuals. You obviously want those trend changes to predate 
to give a lead time so that things such as elective surgeries or ICU staffing could be increased during those times where you were seeing an increase. So the timeliness, it's really kind of a multifaceted challenge that goes all the way from what Dr. Mela was just speaking about, that the municipalities, wastewater municipalities, have not traditionally been part of a public health system. So linking that to the analytical part, and then especially the data analysis. So one of the things our committee has recommended is, as I mentioned earlier, that each system develop their own way of handling data and presenting data. And we learned a lot from those different systems, but actually getting into a more uniform system, more of what we might call a plug and play system, where you could provide that data quite rapidly from the time of sample collection to analytics to actually communicating that data out both to the public and to the public health system. So even a day or two lag in there starts to interfere with the ability to be a leading indicator for actually public health action in our healthcare systems. I think the second thing you mentioned was selecting new targets, and that's certainly a challenge. First of all, it has to be something of public health significance. There's no sense going in just to measure something for the sake of measuring it. We have to be able to measure it accurately, which we're able to do with many of these RNA and DNA viruses, but it's be extended out to other targets, that would be a challenge. And it has to actually be actionable. And I think sometimes aligning across those three domains is really a critical question. For example, you often hear of norovirus outbreaks, which occur on cruise ships and in other highly dense populations. Those generally spread so rapidly that wastewater surveillance may be of very minimal value because by the time you actually detect it in wastewater, you've already had people presenting to the clinic with classic norovirus symptoms. So it really has to be linked to a public health action. So at the same time, one of our big challenges is it has to be prepared for a rapidly spreading, highly virulent organism which the World Health Organization calls disease X or pathogen X. We probably just saw one in the case of COVID-19, certainly in the early parts of the pandemic. But it has to be a system that's actually ready to respond to that and not go through this startup phase that we had to do with the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think that's one of the strongest reasons for maintaining this system in a ready-to-go actionable state is to avoid that lag phase that we saw during the early parts of the COVID-19 pandemic so that we're able to respond to our next infectious disease challenge. So finally, and in that regard, what policy changes would support a more robust wastewater surveillance system and how likely is legislation or regulatory action on this issue going to be? Well, I'll start with the second question. We know there's great interest at CDC in thinking about how we can leverage the learning that occurred during COVID about wastewater surveillance to create a sustainable system. And that is why our committee was convened. Unsurprisingly, a key aspect of making that happen is going to be a sustained and predictable federal investment of dollars in human resources that will go to states um, and trickle down to localities to support their involvement. And that will filter, we hope, out to wastewater utilities, to the treatment plants, who largely were volunteers in the effort during COVID. But thinking about what makes a system sustainable long-term has to involve coverage for that effort. Aside from money, there are other things that we think would be very helpful in making this system solidified for the long-term. Dr. Parmler has talked already about 
the need to prioritize among different targets. And one of the recommendations that we have is for CDC to develop an open and transparent process for doing that, that applies the criteria that Dr. Palmer's laid out, involves external experts in an advisory committee, and can be used to scale up and down the scope of the system, depending on the public health needs of the moment. In order to increase the equity of the system, I've talked about a couple of things that we would need to address, and we think CDC can do this through a more comprehensive outreach effort to localities that aren't represented here, both to offer money, but also the technical expertise and to address concerns or areas of lower than optimal understanding about the value of the data. We also think it's important to think more about how statistical tools could be used to extrapolate what we learn from the represented sites to areas that are not represented in the system to ensure that they receive some benefit as well. And then to speed the pipeline, as Dr. Palmer was emphasizing, is so important. In addition to all of the above, there just really needs to be some planning about how to make this system flex over time to accommodate new kinds of pathogens and what it will take to make it just as useful for pathogen X as for a garden variety but noisome pathogen that we think we can do better at addressing. Finally, to make it integrated, as Dr. Palmer said, we don't think about wastewater as being the only source of data about pathogens, but rather something that is going to be triangulated with other sources. We think it will be important for CDC to really work with localities to help them understand why is this kind of data valuable and under what circumstances. When do lag times matter a lot? When do they matter little? What are the current lag times with clinical testing, with symptomatic reports or other sorts of surveillance data? What are the strengths and weaknesses of these data compared to alternatives? And we also think this sort of plug and play data portal idea could be something very helpful in reducing the burden on localities and getting them to play and getting them the kind of actionable information that they need quickly without requiring every local health department to have an expert in how to analyze wastewater data. So those are some of the things that can be done, I think, mostly through action by CDC under its existing authority, but hopefully with some additional funding. Thank you, Professor Mello. Thank you, Professor Palmer.